when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we're bidding farewell to an old year and welcoming in a new one because we are slaves to artificial constructs like calendars. But since this is a time for New Year's resolutions, we'll offer one up. Let's try to do less moral grandstanding in 2017. And to explain why that's bad, we're welcoming University of Michigan postdoctoral research fellow Justin Tosi to the show. Meanwhile, with all of the talk of an incoming administration, we sometimes forget that our politics are primarily shaped by figures who've actually been in town for quite a while. One in particular is our sometimes reluctant Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Not too long ago, Ryan was the de facto standard bearer of all conservative politics and philosophy, but there's been a lot of changes lately. What does his future look like? We're going to dig down into the Ryanology to try to find that out. Finally, the funny thing about unaccountable executive power is that once it's unleashed, it's pretty hard to stuff back in the box from which it came. And now, America's drone war capability, which got ramped up considerably under President Barack Obama's administration, will become Donald Trump's plaything. We will take a look at some lasting executive branch regrets that will surely not stress you out at all. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Matt Fuller, and Jessica Schulberg. And here's what happened first. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as always by... Uh, me, Jason Lincolns. I'm here. Hi. And, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we've got a, a distinguished academic, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan's uh, philosophy department. That means not distinguished. Yeah, his name is Justin Tosi. Justin, say hi to the people. Hi, everybody. So Justin has just published uh, an article in a very prestigious philosophy academic journal called the Journal of Philosophy and Public Affairs. Uh, and it's about something that uh, perhaps I've been just living in Washington too long, but it seems pretty common. Uh, it's a phenomenon that Justin calls moral grandstanding. And I read his paper, and it really just sort of struck me as something that was an important description of uh, at least one way in which people often behave. So, Justin, can you just give us a quick run-through about you know what this idea of moral grandstanding is? Sure. Uh, I should also say I, I have a co-author, uh, Brandon Warmke of uh, Bowling Green State University. Um, and it, this is the product of equal work and all that. Okay, so now I can just talk about Ethic, me. Ethical yeah. considerations have been made <laughs> to all parties. All right. uh, You're not grandstanding on your authorship right, here. there we go. Uh, okay, so moral grandstanding is sort of the use of moral talk for self-promotion. So it's people using uh, moral conversation, making moral claims to present an impressive image of themselves to others. So that sounds, to me, like something that happens all the time. That, oh, yeah. That like the value of we're probably being... guilty of it ourselves. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 I do it or have yeah. done it. Yeah. yeah, try not to. I mean, it, but the idea being that like you get social rewards for being perceived as, as being cool and good. Yeah, and as being just, a, a yeah. morally upright person, and it it makes me think about like 
a lot of stuff that happened in the Democratic primary where like people from like the Hillary Clinton camp and the Sanders camp didn't really need to come up with reasons to like disagree on policy grounds, but did need to convince each other that they were morally superior to one another. And I feel like it's still going on in the era of Trump where Democrats aren't really sure what to do with themselves. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But like, you know, other than this being just kind of annoying and like causing things to kind of be irritating on Twitter, how how is this a problem? The main problem that we focus on uh, is uh, we need to be able to talk to each other uh, about morality, or we need to be able to talk about what justice requires, uh, what the right thing to do is. Uh, And we think that moral grandstanding is a bad thing because it gets in the way of this important practice. So how does it do that? If, 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 If one person is just out there saying, look how good I am, can't you see how good I am? How does that interfere with the debate? Uh, or the discourse, rather, not necessarily debate, but this public discussion of ideas. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that happens is because people are trying to impress other people, um, what ends up happening is they say things uh, to stand out rather than to actually just make good points about <laughs> what we ought to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, so if your goal is to impress people, uh, you don't impress people by just making careful, like, reasoned, uh, reasoned arguments. Yeah. 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 Uh, you impress people with saying really extreme things, um, and, you know, starting memes, uh, things like that. Uh, <laughs> but that's not, uh, that's not very productive for actually getting at the truth. It's, it's very productive for getting people to talk about you. Uh, but it, it feels like akin to sort of like a, 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 a sort of like another way, form of epistemic closure, where you're sort of like pinning yourself off and just inviting people to conform to you or else go fuck off. Yeah, good. So, so this is one other problem um, is we think it contributes to group polarization, right? Um, and, of course, epistemic closures is part of that. Right. Um, so if, if the stakes of a, a moral conversation are we want to impress people, right, then someone you have to fit to in. Uh, and someone has to yeah, lose. Yeah, so you, need, you need an out group and yeah. you need to, to stand out, right? So you end up making more and more extreme claims and distancing yourself from this other group. And the other group can also play off of this distancing and set you up as sort of their boogeyman. Uh, and the result is you get very polarized groups. This is why uh, America is currently uh, a partisan hellscape. I kind of felt like something like that was going on in the policy arena when we got to talking about the sort of um, uh, contraception uh, requirements of the healthcare law, where we've mm-hmm. had like um, actual practicing Catholics who couldn't get with certain parts of the contraception agreement, and it devolved into a situation where one side were just yelling at the other, and basically nuns were saying, "We do good things for the world," and women were saying, "You know, we don't want to have you know our rights taken from us because of beliefs we don't share with you." And there never became any kind of like really dialogue about what constituted a just solution for all parties in that situation. It was either one side gets to win or the other side gets to win. And there could have been a middle ground we could have reached in that, but we failed to do so. It's almost sort of like an arms race, right? Yeah, yeah. So we say it's like a moral arms race, right? So uh, it doesn't really impress people if you're good at compromising, uh, if you're you're good at (laughs) listening to the other side. It it impresses people if you can uh, destroy other people uh, in in arguments. Yes, yes. And this, uh, I mean, there's there's, there's a little bit of gender tied up in this, I think. You know, dudes got to, like, show that they're, like, the most masculine dudes ever by totally owning somebody on Twitter. But (laughs) but, but women do this, too. Um, You know... 
I, I was sort of thinking about it. You end up with a situation, and Justin, correct me if I'm wrong here because it's your paper, but it, it's making me, it was just making me think that, like, it's sort of like a situation which you have, like, like I hate the marketplace of ideas as a metaphor, but I'm going to use it for <laughs> practical purposes anyway. Fair enough. Where you sort of have, like, instead of, you have a, a thought policing situation, except instead of somebody directing the thought police, you have, like, this market failure in the marketplace of ideas where people are just going to ridiculous conclusions based on the way the sort of social rewards for moral behavior and moral perceptions are, are set up. Do you think that's like a reasonable way of thinking of it? Uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, so the thought is something like uh, a, a normal market process, if we have a marketplace of ideas, would be um, people deciding what seems right to them, right? Right, um, and we discuss it, and we figure out, oh, that's wrong, okay, well, that's true, but this one's good. Right, and, arguing yeah. about it, and the reward, know, the reward becomes finding that conclusion, everyone, where everyone benefits. Right, The positive yeah. sum game for everybody. Yeah. Instead, we have the zero-sum kind of situation happening. Yeah, right, okay, yeah, I, I see it. So the goal isn't sort of an efficient exchange of ideas, it's uh, who's who's the best producer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <right. laughs> who's going who's gonna to get monopoly control over, over moral uh, moral righteousness? <laughs> yeah, there's something to that. You know, how much of this, I I, I, I want to maybe interrogate this argument a little bit because like, I, I feel we're so focused on things like social media, but I've, I've always, my biggest concern maybe with the sort of like rise of social media has been we like place the energy we would normally place in like actual activism and productive conversation, being in a room with people working toward a goal, taking that goal onto the street and convincing people to, to of its, of its viability and, and justness and swapped it for a situation where someone says something we like star favorite, and it feels like that energy has been expunged. And then we, assume that change has happened because we pressed a button somewhere. Is there is 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 that part and parcel of what we're talking about here? It's related, yeah. So this is called moral licensing. Right? So people um, feel like they've done their part by doing something basically meaningless and, right. and, and ineffective. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so so grandstanding tends to take those forms, or you know, very very often at least. Um, yeah, so, so social media is kind of a breeding ground for this sort of behavior. I'm sure if we didn't have social media, well, maybe I'm wrong. If we didn't have social media, would they just find another yeah. venue to, to flourish? <laughs> yeah, people, people will always find a way to do this. This is this is not new. But um, social media yeah. does, like, like everything, it, it makes this worse, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> big, <laughs> bigger stage. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what do you do about it? I mean, I mean, you, to be clear, you're making a distinction here. Moral grandstanding is not making... A moral claim, right? There's there's a difference between talking about morality and and grandstanding. About yeah, it. so this is one unfortunate uh, product of, of a lot of moral grandstanding is that people become cynical about morality, right? So they think it's all for show, right? It's all about showing people that your heart is in the right place, rather than just about trying to get at what we ought to do. Um, so this is unfortunate for for a lot of reasons. So this is you know I, we talk to people about this paper and and you know one reply uh, that we get a lot is oh well you're just grandstanding about grandstanding, <laughs> right? Which I mean that's possible, right? Um, wouldn't be a very effective. Uh, there would be a lot lot shorter routes to, to getting recognition <laughs> right, than, right, than yeah, this. Exactly. Um, but you know that sort of makes our point in a way, right? Um, so we're just making ordinary moral claims, uh, or at least they could be, uh, even if... <laughs> they can be interrogated, um, discussed, critiqued. Whatever. Yeah, right, but but the response is this dismissive, oh, it's just, you know, another, this is just more of the same. 
That does seem like a, a kind of nihilistic response. Yeah. Uh, if, it, if they're right, then there's just nothing to be done, right? We should just yeah. all yell at each other on Twitter forever. Um, but so, so what do we do? We, we got we to wrap this up pretty quickly. But what, you know, how, how should we combat moral grandstanding if, if indeed, you know, it seems like you, you see this as a problem. Yeah, good. Uh, so what we really don't want people to do is to start calling each other out uh, for grandstanding. Um, so we worry, uh, you know, first of all, you can't really be certain about what's motivating someone. I mean, sometimes it's pretty clear, to be, be mm-hmm. honest, but right. uh, you, can't, you can't really know. And if you do call them out, um, the ensuing discussion is, is bound to be nasty and unhelpful. You're, you're probably just going to be another occasion for more people to grandstand. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we don't want to encourage this to, you know, to be like the next mansplaining, right? So everything, a man explaining something is mansplaining now. Right, right. right. Um, so what you should do, though, is I think uh, you can pretty safely just stop giving people credit for it, right? Uh, stop liking grandstanding posts on, on social media. Stop voting for politicians because they come across as the good guy in publicity stunts. Uh, and we also think, you know, now that you've heard me talk about and us talk about how awful this is, um, try not to do it yourself, right? Um, hopefully some of its appeal is gone. Maybe, maybe just have a nice dialogue with people who you feel like you can have an intellectually honest conversation with. Yeah, right. <laughs> including people you disagree with. Um, right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a pretty good New Year's resolution type of thing to say. Um, I think that everyone, everyone, I don't know, me and Zach could probably benefit from from some of this instruction, um, and uh, and uh, yeah. and so could everyone else. Um, I think that probably just less social media in 2017 is a good idea all around for everybody. Yeah. All right. Well, Justin Tosi, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Season's greetings. So, guys, uh, obviously, one thing we have to look forward to in the new year is Donald Trump's inauguration. But there'll be another significant yeah, figure boy. of power. I know we're all excited. Uh, in in Republican circles, that's also going to be looking ahead at what could be a problematic, troublesome, or maybe happy new year. And that is our Speaker of the House, Wisconsin Representative Paul Ryan, who uh, famously neutraled his way through the election season and now (laughs) stands poised to do something. We're going to try to figure out what. Joining us right now, Arthur Delaney. Hello. 
And uh, we're happy. I think first time on the show. First time. Won't be the last. But Matt, maybe the last. Well, <laughs> <laughs> nothing is promised. Matt Fuller is here. Hello. Matt, you are quite a good rhinologist. <clears throat> that we, is a field of medicine that I, I don't know of. But <laughs> Matt, Matt Fuller is a, a top Capitol Hill correspondent for us, and he's deeply sourced with the Republicans. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, as in the, in the post-election interregnum, as best as you know or can describe, where where uh, where was uh, Paul Ryan's thinking at? Yeah, I think everyone uh, knew that Ryan wasn't completely on board with the Trump train. Um, he had sort of introduced quite a bit of daylight before the election happened. He did his whole month-long, you know, wavering, neutraled, yeah. as you said. Um, and, yeah, he, he was critical throughout the campaign season and then sort of came around a little bit at the very end, uh, I think sensing that there was could be some blowback if uh, Trump had lost and then members were like, well, where were you and why didn't he win Wisconsin? And, of course, uh, the other alternate history happens and Trump wins. So now um, Ryan, you know, has sort of gone um, the complete opposite way where he had, was showing so much um, – Hesitancy. Now he's, you know, fully on board, and and, and anything Trump does, uh, you know, nothing is nothing is beyond the pale here. When he was asked, well, how should he uh, handle his conflicts of interest? Is quote, however he wants to, right? Right. Um, when, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's quite an amazing um, position. What what he's been hesitancy has been his brand for the past two years. Remember when he became speaker in this in this Congress? Yeah. By saying, I'll only do it, uh, but you'll have to drag me away from my family. I have conditions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you must promise to let me go home and spend time with my family whenever I want. Yeah. I don't know if that's holding up as well either. I mean, we interviewed him in June, and he had said essentially that he's spending one day a week you know, with his kids. He, Saturday is still sort of like district political time fundraising. Might slow down a little bit around the holidays, get some deer hunting in or whatever. Right. Grows a beard and stuff. Um but yeah, I, th- I think it's still this is a very demanding job, and he's realized that there's been a lot of um, the expectations that Ryan had, and then now him coming to terms with the reality of it, which is this is not easy, and the, like, the magic of Paul Ryan doesn't extend to the speakership, and people don't really care that he's Paul Ryan, and um, you know, oh, I want a budget done, and it's like, well, no, we want <laughs> you know we want uh, the budget number at the number we want it, and. Oh, well, we're going to pass all the appropriations bills. Well, no, you're going to pass five appropriations bills, which is actually worse than what Boehner was able to it do. Did not, yeah, there was no regular order. They right. flunked that spectacularly. Total, total F. Uh, I mean, they, they actually did, I guess, get one bill into law, which is the Milcon VA, Military Construction and the Veterans Affairs uh, Appropriations Bill. But that is, the, you know, perennially the easiest lift of them all. And we ended the year with another continuing resolution. We kicked it off into April. I can't get past the fact that in the spring when he had uh, won some primaries and Paul Ryan hadn't endorsed him yet, Donald Trump threatened him. Yeah, well, that's right. Even we're in August and, and Trump was threatening him. He, yeah. was, he was saying with Paul Nealon, which was Trump, uh, Ryan, sorry, Ryan's um, primary, primary opponent, yeah. he was saying, you know, he was flirting with backing the guy who's clearly a huge Trumpkin himself. Okay, so what does it say about, does it say anything? Because I, I am clearly <laughs> obsessed with it. What does it say about a man that he endorses someone who threatens him. Yeah, well, I, we, I think we're watching the slow, um, you know, the unmasking of Paul Ryan and the whole I'm a serious, principled, 
conservative person. Um, we're learning f- with a lot of Republicans that you know the, these principles that they had, these moral convictions that they, you know, would stand up and uh, I'm not going to do this or well, I'm going to do that. Um, we're learning it's kind of bullshit, right? I mean, I, ha- I have to say it's been like a dizzying ride following Paul Ryan's career because it was not so long ago, like literally not long ago, that Paul Ryan was essentially considered the heart of the conservative movement. You know, indistinguishable and indivisible from conservatism itself. The guy who was the famed policy wonk who dressed up all the numbers was on Sunday morning television all the time, speaking on behalf of the party. And in such a short time, he's become almost like an outsider. But he's still striving. I mean, yeah. during the another thing he was doing during the election was trying to fill what he probably assumed correctly would be a big policy, policy vacuum. vacuum. Yeah. Well, I think so. First of all, Democrats and Republicans both want to believe in the myth of Paul Ryan, that there's this conservative, smart, wonk guy who doesn't just hate, you know, he doesn't hate poor people. He just believes in something different. And, um, you know, they want to believe that a guy who knows actuarial tables is out there um, pouring over data and coming up with conservative plans. So it's, it's, it's sort of reassuring. But the thing with Trump. I mean, Trump is really the anti-Paul Ryan, right? Oh, uh, I mean, anti-immigration. Um, Paul Ryan's pro-immigration, anti-trade. Paul Ryan was the biggest cheerleader of trade in in, in the House of Representatives. Um, anti-cronyism, right? We're now seeing with the carrier deal. And it, we get another instance where uh, Ryan just sort of rolls over with this carrier deal. You know, he was. You, you've probably heard him say, "Winners and losers." Paul Ryan, the last five years or so. Oh yeah, the government signs. should not choose them. We, we shouldn't be picking winners and losers. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So, and yet, you know, he's asked about the carrier deal, and he says, "Well, a lot of people are going to get their keep their jobs." So, you know, how about that? Um, so, it, it, it's, it's really the the, more, the flexibility of Ryan is what we've we're witnessing, um, and it's an interesting look. But at the same time, um, there is there is at least uh, some element of defense to this. I think right. He's He's sort of saying, well, you want someone to be there uh, during the really dire situation. Um, you you need someone who's in the room who who has some sort of credibility with with Trump who can stand up to him. Uh, if it's who, just who will serve as a potential check on Trump's potential authoritarianism. Yeah. I mean, there, there, and and there's an argument to be made that we went way past that check a long time ago, and <laughs> Ryan should have spoken up then and didn't. Um, or, you know, you could also say he did because there was a few times where he spoke out against, you know, the Muslim ban is, the, I guess, the most famous one. But um, when Trump was slow to denounce David Duke and the KKK and um, there are a whole slew of instances where Ryan did speak out. But now he seems resigned to the fact that he has to be a Trump cheerleader. Um, and the thing that about this is maybe if he cheers hard, loud enough, maybe he gets like a Medicare overall, yeah. which is what, you know, his ultimate goal in Congress has I've, always been. I've tried to put myself in Paul Ryan's shoes since the election, just to try to contemplate where his thinking's at. And part of me is not surprised to hear him go so soft on conflicts of interest. I mean, we know that if Hillary Clinton had won the election, he'd be yeah. like asking the, at the mouth. Yeah. for the Clinton Foundation to be torn down root and branch. But like, I can see a potential calculus Paul Ryan where he knows that what he's got is a guy who's is most dangerous when he's angry. Uh, and impulsive, and it could be that you trade the conflicts of interest and self-enrichment just as, you know, ensuring that Donald Trump gets some kind of reward out of all of this, Yeah, you know, to keep him quiet, happy, and less likely to start pushing the wrong kind of buttons. And, and that's the most charitable take, and I, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Um, it's just, at some level, this is a question of where you draw that line, and we've seen continually 
Paul Ryan push off that line, push off that line. And I think we're all wondering, you know, when is that moment where you know, the come to Jesus moment for Paul Ryan and Donald Trump? And, there, you know, everyone has sort of assumed there will be a reckoning at some point because no one really thinks that this this uh, friendship or whatever we want to call it is going to last. Um, Paul Ryan just seems to think he can play Trump, right, that if he smiles and talks about how great he is and we're going to make America great again, then Trump will just sort of forget about all the little grudges he's had. But that, And that, that does appear to be working because Donald Trump <coughs> said yeah, you think so? early in December <laughs> – that Paul Ryan is like a fine, fine wine. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I and I, this is the one thing I'll say. I don't think Trump is a smart person, okay? But he does seem to hold a long grudge, and he does seem to understand uh, there is sort of the difference between, to borrow Hillary's uh, thinking, a public position and a private one. Yeah. Um, I still don't think that privately Donald Trump is on board with Paul Ryan. I think Paul Ryan believes he is. I know that they're talking constantly. I think they... Uh, it was said that they talk every day, uh, which is a significant uh, amount of interaction. With there was this notion that Paul Ryan is teaching Donald Trump about the Constitution. Yeah, and, and well, look, there's also the people who are surrounding uh, Trump, right? You have Ryan's Priebus, who's a, who's a great Ryan ally. Uh, you have Mike Pence, same thing. Uh, I think people assume Jared Kushner. I think you, you, you call this the axis of establishment, which is a pretty good way to yeah. <laughs> describe yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and Ryan, I think, is taking comfort in the fact that the people who are surrounding him are, are his allies. And there's obviously the one person who's not, who has Trump to yours, Steve Bannon. Who hates Paul Ryan. Absolutely hates Paul Ryan. Right. And, yeah. and has, has made no qualms about that. Um, and we've seen private emails um, where he's, you know, get, he's rubbing my, his social Catholicism in my face and... Um, it does. They, it does like to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and well, they ran stories about uh, Paul Ryan's kids going to attending a, a private Catholic school. Um, that he has a, a border wall around his house. I mean, this, Breitbart has been an, an enthusiastic opponent of Paul Ryan's, and Paul. That's not lost on Paul Ryan at all. It's just amazing to see when Bannon was appointed, and the you know the opportunity to denounce Bannon essentially, or or at least voice some, um, again, some hesitancy. Uh, Ryan's response was, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forwards, not looking backwards. He just wants to, does he just want to be president? You know, I, I, in four to eight years? Everyone has assumed that that was Paul Ryan's game plan here, where, okay, Trump, you put a sort of a, a close that chapter, and we move ahead, and Paul Ryan sort of takes the party into a new direction um, and, and can kind of say, and actually I think we were all expecting it. In fact, we've, and this is well known, we've written a story on it too, but um, there was supposed to be the sort of November 9th reckoning because everyone assumed, including Paul Ryan, that Hillary would win. And then Trump would whine and say, you know, actually, I did win and millions of voters and legally and whatever. Right. And Paul Ryan might come in and say, you know what, that that chapter's over. Uh, I think it's time to move on. Hillary is our president. And he could do that. And, of course, that didn't pan out. Right. So um, Ryan is just thinking, uh, let's move ahead and not. Well, I guess that <laughs> that reality doesn't exist anymore, and uh, that's that. Well, you know, man. Speaker of the House, man. I tell you, the real winner here is John Boehner. Sommelier's uh, tongue knew uh, when he was drinking from a poison chalice. Mer- Merlot. Yeah. Uh, we could get, let's have let's have a little little uh, John Boehner. Oh, the American people love Paul Ryan. We're asking, where are the jobs? Where are the jobs? Obama needs to get off his ass. Yeah. It's uh, like I'm in the room with him. It's like I'm in the room with him. Uh, give me a camel. John Boehner. All right. Uh, thanks, thanks, Matt, for joining yep. us, uh, and we will be right back. 
Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. Hey, we're back and uh, got Arthur Delaney by my side. Hello. And we're also joined by one of our favorite people, uh, Jessica Schulberg. Hello. Huffington Post Foreign Policy Reporter. And we're going to talk about what I what I have to imagine is one of your favorite topics, the uh, unaccountable drone program. That That is one of my favorites. So um, President Obama, he droned some folks and uh, and he has, you know, I think expanded the reach of his executive power where it comes to the drone program. And uh, now, ha, 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 he's about to hand all of this over to, uh, uh, what's, who is it again? Donald Trump. That's the guy. That's the guy. Donald Trump. He's going to be the next president. He was a former uh, reality television star and, and uh, impulsive. Mogul. Casino mogul. Yes. Uh, mogul. I mean, <laughs> mogul in the fact that you can hit a mogul and go flying over your skis and wipe out. Also a mogul. Twitter star. And a Twitter star. Impulsive. Kind of guy fires off a lot of lots of hellfire missiles. And now he's got hellfire <laughs> missiles. So um, here's what I recall: it four years ago uh, when it was actually hilarious because I believe this happened after the first debate where uh, where Obama went up against Romney and Romney kind of pasted him, mm-hmm. and for a second the poll shifted and it looked like Romney might prevail. And the Obama administration, who, in a move that I thought at the time was, like, way too clever by half, started sort of, like, tinkering around with the idea of sort of restricting the drone program in the idea that, oh, fall into Romney's hands. Now, Mitt Romney may have had a lot of faults, but one of them was not the fact that he evinced this sort of, like, taste for blood. Right. He wasn't going to impulsively drone people any more impulsively than Obama would have. This is a guy who probably would have taken his cues from some spreadsheet. He was a technocrat. Trump, not the same mm-hmm. kind of person. So uh, has there been a revival of concern over whether they've let this sort of like Bush era executive power cat too far out of the bag? Well, a couple of things. A, to even call it Bush era, I think is a little bit unfair to George W. Because the Obama Fair administration play. has dramatically expanded the use of drones, mm. uh, both in the frequency in which they use them, the number of countries that are using them, and, and even... The, the the description of what the White House uses to establish what's a legitimate target, it, it can be more of a, you know, this guy fits the profile in terms of, you know, certain age male in an area known to be occupied by militants. It's not necessarily like we know for certain it is this specific person that we're targeting. Right. Uh, the second thing is about the level of panic within the White House. Uh, yes, I'd, I'd imagine there's a fair amount. But what's important to remember is that when the New York Times... Uh, broke the story that the Obama administration was briefly tinkering with the idea of actually writing some rules around the drone program. That report came out uh, mid-2013, so well after the actual uh, tinkering would have occurred. Right. Um, so I do think that we'll probably have more luck uh, getting leaks from this next year through freedom of information requests, through disgruntled Obama administration staffers. But so far, what has come out is that the Obama administration is not making any sweeping changes to the program. Uh, What we've seen instead is the Obama administration releasing somewhat 
more publicly the legal rationale that his administration has used to execute the drone program. Um, he released in December, early December, a 61-page report, which is sort of like the comprehensive legal explanation as to not just the drone program, his almost his entire counterterrorism program, including detention policy, drones, um, airstrikes against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Um, and I don't know that 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 definitely wasn't reining Trump in. That was more trying to show an increasing level of transparency. But even in this report, you know, a lot a lot is left up to the executive and a lot does happen behind closed doors. Help under help us understand the scale of Obama's drone wars. For instance, Iraq war killed thousands of Americans and what a million people in Iraq. And how many people are we droning? I, I had heard that it was... Low thousands? Uh, are you talking about militants or civilians? Either one. Yeah, the whole yeah just give us a little bit of uh, how many people were, were droning. Well, so we're looking, we're, uh, we're looking at people in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia, and Pakistan, at least, um, just within the Obama administration's presidency. And it is in the thousands. This isn't, you know, some mass scale, you know, tens of thousands of people being wiped off the planet. Um, but what's hard, too, is, I mean, the numbers the numbers vary depending on who you ask. The um, I'm going to butcher the name, but the Investigative Bureau for journal, Investigative Journalism, um, they track the drone strikes probably most, most closely, and their data on civilian strikes are quite a bit higher than what the Obama administration's released. Uh, well, no, go figure. Um, <clears throat> and part of that, again, could be, you know, how do we count a civilian? Well, yeah, one of the one of the fun little tricks of language that we hear in the drone program is that they have this concept called the signature strike, right. which which makes it sound like you're getting like a, a special concierge level <laughs> drone attack. Quite like at a hotel, opposite. you get like, yeah, it's quite it's it's like literally the signature strike is actually a more vague attack mm -hmm. than the I forget what the alternative is. Um You've gotten a sense now of kind of the way uh, Donald Trump's cabinet is shaping up, and how don't, don't laugh, don't don't <laughs> Do you want laugh, me to cry? don't don't laugh or cry, and and like how his his specifically his NATSEC and defense um, cabinet is shaping up. In terms of who, forget that we're handing this over to Trump. We're also obviously uh, handing the program over to a group of advisors that um, will be sort of endeavoring to explain to him, hopefully, the, the, mo the most prudent use of, of, of all aspects of our, of our military force. Um, what, kind of, uh, what kind of confidence do you have in Trump's NATSEC crew when it comes to the drone program? Well, let's start with the stipulation with that the, we don't we won't get a full picture of who those people are until well, so perhaps do, after the first we, of the year. We do have a defense secretary, head of the CIA and the national security advisor, which is honestly kind of the, the big three. Um, secretary of state will be important, but not the one who's making the final calls here. Uh, so let's go from from good to bad, I guess. So okay. if we look at the Pentagon, we've got General James Mattis heading the, the military um, who's widely respected, thought to be he, almost like a military scholar, very well-read, very thoughtful. And in the Marine community, revered. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, definitely a, more hawkish instincts than what I think some progressives would hope for, but not in an irrational, impulsive way. Uh, so I think military is in good hands relatively if we look there. Now, a weird thing about him is he's not long enough out of the military for our rules for civilian leadership. So right. he's going to get an exemption 
from that Congress. for Congress. Right. So we, in order to prevent the military from having an excessive amount of control and potentially staging a coup, uh, we used to have a 10-year, you used to have to be out of the military for 10 years before you could become defense secretary. Uh, several years ago, Congress shortened that to seven years. However, James Mattis has only been out for three years, which makes him uh, pretty far away. Uh, Democrats seemed like they were sort of toying with the idea of not granting him the special waiver that he would need to head the military. Um, I think even within the the congressional Democrats, there is some thinking like, oh, is this really the hill we want to die on? Um, and then the Republicans sort of forced the waiver to get attached to a giant must-pass spending bill. So Mattis will get his waiver um, but you don't figure him for a serial violator of positive Don't figure him where we need yeah. to be most most worried. Uh, so if we move over to the CIA, which has also had, I mean, the drone program was split between JSOC, which is under the Pentagon, and the CIA, depending on which country we're operating in. JSOC is this Joint, Joint Special, Special Operations, Operations Command. Yeah. Committee? Command. Right. Uh, <laughs> we, figure, we figure heavily in... Uh, in books like Dirty Wars, right. yeah, so yeah, right, all the all the secret, secret special ops guys. Um, but over at the CIA, that's headed by Congressman Mike Pompeo, who publicly seems kind of like an asshole, to be honest. I mean, he he speaks very highly of the enhanced interrogation program, which is uh, what we call torturing people. Yeah, um, which so does Trump. Exactly, Loves he's much torture. much more in line with Trump. Came out in support of Trump very early. Um, kind of made the Iran nuclear deal like his number one issue during his time in Congress, pulled a bunch of stunts like going to the equivalent of the Iranian embassy in the U.S., which is more of like a, a little office building, and demanded a visa to go to Iran and observe, you know, the human rights situation there and monitor their elections, which is, you know, kind of just a, a big political ploy. Um, but what I have heard from folks over in the intelligence community is that in private uh, closed briefings, um, Pompeo is on the uh, uh, House Intelligence Committee, and everyone says that in private he's actually much more thoughtful and serious. And that, you know, as a as a legislator, he's been a bit of a political hack. But people at the CIA are actually pretty confident that once he moves over to the agency, he'll be um, a little bit more apolitical, and that he actually seems to take great interest in deliberating well, matters. That's good. Okay. Who, who's behind door number three? Oh, door number well, three. Door number three is where this we... This is where the tiger jumps out and mauls your face clean that off. That would be Luke, you're wearing like a tiger shirt. It's got black and orange stripes on it. Nobody can see the shirt. <laughs> that's yeah. why I'm describing it to everybody. It's okay. adorable. Anyways, door number three, we've got Lieutenant General Mike Flynn, who oh. used to be quite well respected. He was the head of the kind of the military CIA. It's called the DIA, the Defense right. Intelligence Agency. And then he became uh, like a walking caricature from Dr. Right. Strange. He gets pushed out, and ever since then, he's taken to just saying absolutely batshit crazy he, things he, on he's Twitter. He's a Pizzagate guy. He is a big pusher of Pizzagate. He well, routinely. I it was his son, not both. Him. him too. His son has oh, okay. recently been retweeting Mike Cernovich, that guy that thinks that rape is fake because the women right. want yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Son retweets him all the time. Um, Mike Flynn has retweeted some Pizzagate things before the armed gunman came into Comet Pizzeria and shot the floor. Yeah. Uh, Mike Flynn was running around throughout the campaign, yelling, lock her up, referring to Hillary Clinton, of course. Um, people I've spoken with recently at the DIA so that even while he was there, he was known to say some pretty bad things about Muslims, um, and said that they're another breed during an award ceremony yeah. with an Australian counterpart. Hmm. And if I recall correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, because I know there's a sort of high prevalence of this kind of weird idea uh, among uh, some of Trump's coterie, but isn't Flynn one of those people that like expressly believes that 
Iran and ISIS are completely in cahoots with each other. He just thinks radical Islam is bad. They're all they're all against us. They're all working together. They're all one and the same, which sort of overlooks these big glaring issues where the Iranians are fighting ISIS and there's this huge Shia Sunni chasm within the Muslim world. So right. so President Obama is is maybe he didn't talk about reigning in his drones, but he certainly did at the beginning of December say, man, Congress really ought to start declaring wars instead of letting presidents do it, which was a bit rich considering <laughs> so you know, rich. he had had kind White of... House lawyers twist all yeah. logic mm-hmm. into saying that the, the 2001 authorization serves all their purposes. Yeah, and it... even when in this last speech he gave, he said, you know, Congress, like I, I came to you guys two years ago and I asked for another war authorization and you guys punted because you didn't want to take a difficult vote. That's all true, but he came to Congress after he already started bombing ISIS in Iraq and Syria and made it very clear that him asking Congress to weigh in on this, whether or not he should be doing it, was purely symbolic, and he was going to do it no matter what. So it, it, it is a bit rich of him to blame Congress for, for the current predicament we have. And, so, yeah, it is a current and ongoing predicament. One thing I would add, I know we're running out of time, but just when we're talking about, you know, magic door number three, Mike Flynn, um, his title is National Security Advisor, which maybe sounds less important than being the head of a major agency like the the military or the CIA. Um, But in recent history, and especially under the Obama administration, the National Security Advisor has had arguably one of the most important roles in government. I mean, he has the direct ear of the president. He's often the last person that the president will hear on any big issue. And we know that with Donald Trump, he tends to be most influenced by the last person he talks to. So it's it's quite troubling to think that 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 guy could be Mike Flynn. Prepare for Pizzagate diplomacy. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. Well, um, sounds great as normal. All right. Thank you, uh, Jessica, for once again, coming on and, and talking us through the coming eschaton. Uh, Arthur, eschaton. <laughs> thanks for being here, too. Uh, we will be right back. Eschaton. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by University of Michigan postdoctoral research fellow Justin Tosi, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Matt Fuller, and Jessica Schulberg. So That Happened is available on iTunes. You can go to iTunes.com slash So That Happened and check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, please subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and Happy New Year. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.